A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheimt waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kauten Schabes hat es getan. Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, it is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. Soundbites, and this episode, um, Rev. Mendel Futterfass has been sponsored, generously sponsored. Actually, this dedication is one of the best and funniest which I've ever received. So here it goes. This episode has been sponsored anonymously by a loyal and dedicated listener of Jewish History Soundbites in honor of Yehuda Geber doing one more episode of Jewish History Soundbites because now there's quite a big interval between each episode, almost like a hiatus between each one. So we're just happy that there's another one. And I want to just explain what this... A uh, very nice uh, listener means. First of all, it's not you, it's me. Um, and, uh, you know, just till I get things going and and uh, sometimes just get distracted. And unfortunately, I'm not able to have it in as often intervals as I would like to. But um, it's definitely me, not you. So don't worry about it. Um, there's a lot of, I had this episode about first names, tons of feedback, lots of great feedback um, from this past one, a bunch of corrections as well. The main one, I made, there's a few corrections, but the main one was just, I don't know, I guess I misspeak. I said that uh, Sprinza, I meant to say, came from Esperanza. There was a big kablooey there. I somehow, it came out as it came from Senorita. And obviously it does not. Sprinza, which is, means hope, Tikva, is the same name. It comes from the Spanish Esperanza. Um, so I don't know how many, so many listeners graciously corrected me on that one. It was just a misspeak. I definitely um, um, had it in my notes correctly to say it, that Sprinza was Esperanza. I, tried to, I thought of doing the teacher thing. I was just testing to see if you're paying attention but then I decided I'm just going to be honest and say that I misspoke. And I really, really appreciate all of those who kindly pointed it out. And Sprintz is obviously a Yiddish for um, uh, hope, and as is Tikva in Hebrew. And in Spanish, apparently, Esperanza also means hope. It's important to note with the recent passing a few weeks ago of the legendary Chaim Topol, that one of Tevye the Dairyman's daughter's names was Sprintza. So... There you have the, a great source for um, that Yiddish uh, first name as well. Now, there's several more corrections and, and clarifications and other feedback that I received. So one of them I want to read. It was very nicely done. 
Um, and he wrote uh, that his source is Alexander Beter's book on Ashkenazic given names. So this is what th- this this um, letter writer wrote. Animal names such as Dov, Zev, and Svi all originate in old Ashkenaz as as um, variants of Ber, Wolf, and Hersh. All outside use of these names is apparently due to Ashkenazi migration. Um, additionally, the romance-sounding Ashkenazi names, which are all very old, likely were in Ashkenaz from its origin, not from Sephardic migration, as the original Ashkenazim likely consisted of French and Italian Jews. The Kedushas Tzian of Babov was named Ben Tzian because his mother lost a few children before he was born, like they, uh, like I said, that it was a Sgula. Um, so there, there, you, there you have that. Uh, the name Bela, another another letter writer wrote, I heard stands for, it's an acronym for Baruch Hashem L'Oilam Amen. Interesting. Um, so there's uh, quite a few other ones. One of the, another, another letter, another feedback I got was there's then the Sefer Base Shmuel by Gitten. Hilchas Gitten discusses the origins of names. There are a few Hebrew names. Many names for women in Yiddish. Rabbi Meisha wrote a tshuva about naming Gaiisha names such as Gittel. Apparently Gittel is a non-Jewish name. Um, he says that even though it's not the most appropriate thing, but that was the custom throughout history to use names such as that. And then another one, another fascinating feedback I got was that one of the names of Meisha Rabbeinu apparently was Zalman. I did not know that. On the topic of cross-gender naming, I remember hearing, this is someone else writing, I remember hearing that the Kolashitzer Rav, Reb Chana Halberstam, was named after his grandmother, whose name was Chana. His name was not Elchanan, which is sometimes shortened to Chana as a nickname, but Chana spelled exactly the same way Chana is spelled in Hebrew. I don't remember the story linked to it. Perhaps someone else will end up providing that. That's the end of another letter. And there is lots, lots more. I'm just taking a small smattering of the feedback that I got. Um, apparently, it was a very, very popular episode. Um, generated generated a much more high volume, higher volume of feedback than we generally get from um, an average episode. I wanted to speak about, on Pesach, Reb Mendel Futterfass. Reb Mendel Futterfass is one of the most incredible Lubavitcher Hasidim in history. And he's such a fascinating personality. Someone who I always liked and admired and read about. And I felt like there's a great Pesach association from bondage to freedom. He's someone who lived in the Soviet prison in Siberia, in Soviet prison and in, in figuratively and literally and went through everything. All the textbook Soviet um, challenges and suffering and, and, and all that. And he achieved freedom. He was able to get out eventually, and even there he got us this spiritual freedom. He was able to fight for his own his own, uh, his own, own way. So there's this incredible story of bondage to freedom, which I think is very Pesach-themed. And I also, right before Pesach, I feel like it's too close to Pesach for us to appreciate, but the uh, 11th day of Nisan is the Rebbe's birthday, and the 13th day of Nisan, literally, the day before B'dikas Chametz is the Tzemach Tzedekas of Chabad's yard site. And it gets in the rush before Pesach. We don't get to uh, appreciate it enough. So here we're going to have a Lubavitch-themed episode of Reb Mendel Futterfass. So Reb Mendel Futterfass, his name was Reb Menachem Mendel, 
of Futurvaz, but his, he was known as Reb Mendel. And he was a, a very, very uh, unique personality and has this very important place in the history of Jews in the Soviet Union, in the history of Lubavitch, in the history of Hasidus, and someone who rose to the challenges and was able to not only help himself, but really, really have a tremendous impact on others as well. There's two aspects of Remendel Futterfass himself, which I'm going to less focus on. And that is his fascinating life and journey. In other words, his biography itself. I'm going to touch on it, but not as much. And there's also his stories and his Mishalim, which made him a legendary figure in his own lifetime by his Fabrengans and his teachings at Taim Chetmimim and Kfar Chabad in, uh, in, in Israel at the end, in the last 20 something years of his life. Those are two, his probably maybe his two very important parts of his legacy and his story that I'm going to mention, but not, not as much, not as, not, not as focused on as much. But I feel like there's two areas of history which I find fascinating, which Remendel Futterfass's life provides a window to and a context for, uh, which I'll focus on more. And that's number one, is this great story of the repatriation from the Soviet Union to Poland, the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. There's this repatriation story of officially for Polish citizens who were stuck in the Soviet Union during the war. And there's this agreement signed between the Soviet Union and Poland after the war that Polish citizens are allowed to leave the Soviet Union and return home to Poland. And what and Jews who escaped to, to the Soviet Union from Poland during the war um, utilized this, this agreement. But not only that, there were many Jews who were Soviet citizens who um, who also utilized it by getting forged documents that they were Polish citizens and getting this window of opportunity to finally leave the Soviet Union after being in there for so long. And that Remendel Futafas was in the center of that. He, he literally was one of the organizers of this uh, campaign in Lvov to get people across the border, get Lubavitcher to see them out and their families and anyone um, affiliated with that. It's a crucial and overlooked story, I feel, um, which Remendel played a central role and ultimately had great sacrifices. He was separated from his family and then arrested and deported to Siberia for his acts. That is one aspect of his story that I want to focus on. A second aspect of his story that I want to focus on is Hasidus in post-war Soviet Union. There is no Hasidic Rebbe leading a court. There are no institutions there's no, and it's officially illegal, everything. So the Soviet authorities are not very excited about Hasidic life flourishing, to say the least. And there's the Stalinist and then post-Stalinist Soviet Union, 40s, 50s, 60s. It's a very grassroots, um, I wouldn't even call it a movement because it's so small and so underground at this point that it's it's a great sacrifice. And it's it's social history because it's it's from the bottom up. It's not from any organized leadership, and how there's a any kind of Hasidic community uh, sustained under such adverse conditions, the teachings that go on, the relationships, the community. It's very, in Hebrew we would say, amami. It's very, you know, just the people, the people themselves, and how Hasidic life can continue to exist under the most trying conditions in the Soviet Union under the most adverse conditions without any organizational structure or leadership. And of course, Remendel Futterfass is at 
the center of that as well, and I find that to be a rather compelling story. And it's rather uncommon for a chassid to become so famous. Usually the ones who are famous are rebbes, leaders, rabbis, politicians, philanthropists, and here it's it's a chassid who emerges. He rises to the challenge and he becomes, he emerges as someone who's who's uh, who's able to be there at the right place at the right time. Um, and he's always been one of my favorites. I heard about him at many Farbrengans in our community in Beit Shemesh. They very often speak about him. He also has the right type of look. If you've ever seen a picture of him, he had this Russian, uh, like peasant's hat, like this kapechka, uh, 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 Russian hat. And he never changed it, even after he moved to England and later to Israel. Um, he had this long, flowing white beard and this coat, and he had the right look. He looked like a Russian chassid from 150 years ago. And there's a lot to say about having the right look. I remember when I read The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Shearer, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. And as I was reading the book, I conjured up this image of what this CBS reporter um, uh, of the Nazi Third Reich might look like. And then when I looked him up online and I saw that he had you know, these thick glasses and a pipe and leaning in his chair in the right way, I was like, wow, that's exactly how I imagined him. And I was so excited that, that the, 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 you know, that the stereotype matched exactly what I wanted it to. So Rabendel Hutterfass is also one of those guys. He has the right look. He looks exactly as you want him to look, as you imagine that image of a Russian chassid living in the Soviet Union at great sacrifice should look. So... Um, it's almost a quintessential Chabad story. Soviets, um, you know, the, there's uh, the, the, there's great books about him. There's uh, in Hebrew, at least I know. There's uh, at least two books, maybe even more, um, that I know of about Rabbi Lefutovas. I can't say I read every word of those books, so you know, don't catch me on every page of those books. But I've seen them both. And there's some great articles out there online in both Hebrew and English. It could be there are books in English as well. I don't know. I highly recommend that if you're interested in hearing more fascinating stories about Remendel himself and his life experiences, and even more so about his teachings, his stories that he used to relate, his mishalim, his parables that he would relate as life lessons at his legendary Fabrengans, then I would think that you should contact your local Chabad or Lubavitch friend and they'll be delighted to share it with you. This is their bread and butter. He's part of Chabad folklore, and deservedly so. Uh, like I said, we often focus on Rebbes and leaders, but the story of Reb Mendel is how someone emerges from the rank and file as a regular chassid to be the central mashpia of the entire um, Chabad, and it's an incredible life story. Um, he's at the crossroads of history and rose to the top. So I want to give a bit of a broader perspective. He's born into a prominent family um, in 1907 in Plashenitz, near Minsk in, in, in Belarus. His father passed away before his birth. So he has the unique distinction of being Menachem Mendel ben Menachem Mendel. Um, he was named after his own father. So the young orphan is brought up in the home of his grandmother, who is a well-known Hasidic uh, woman, uh, who is a childhood friend of the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe of Chabad, his wife, Rebetzin Sterna Sarah. So she was friends with him. This Rebbe, this Rachaleah, this grandmother of Rebbe Mendel, was friends with the Rashab's Rebetzin. So whenever she would visit Lubavitch in the early 1900s, she would stay at the Rebbe Rashab's home. And when she visited in 1915, 
she brought along the eight-year-old Mendel. So the young child was got to see the Rashab when he uh, when he was a young eight-year-old boy, and he gave him a bracha. And he visited him again. It became like an annual thing. He visited him every year. And the last time the Remendel saw the Rashab, he was 13 years old. He was already bar mitzvah. So he, he got to see the, the fifth Rabbi of Chabad, the Rashab. And in 1919, Remendel went to the underground yeshiva in Kremenchunk, which is already underground because the Bolshevik Revolution had already broken out two years before. Um, and then he switched, you know, the Bolsheviks kept on exposing these underground um, throughout the, so- the emerging Soviet Union. Um, so he switched to Yeshiva in Kharkov, then one in Vitebsk, then another one in Neville. And uh, he, um, he, uh, he, he got to know some of the uh, superstars of Chabad in, in those days, Reb Chachafagin and uh, Reb Der Masmid. Reb Zalman Moshe Hayitzchaki, all these very big mashpiim in Chabad, and he became very close with the upper echelon, uh, the upper, the higher, the upper people echelons. How do you pronounce that? Of of, <laughs> of Lubavitch at the time, he eventually joins the yeshiva in Yakterenislav as a mashpia. He's twenty three years old, and the rabbi of Yakterenislav under the Soviets is Reb Levi Yitzchak Schneerson, the father of Lubavitch Rebbe, who I devoted an episode to last summer. I covered him. And here he's a mashpia at an underground Taimchet Mimim in Yakhtarenislav in the 1920s in the Soviet Union. And the rabbi of the town is the Lubavitch Rebbe's father, Reb Levi Yitzchak Schneerson. So the two had a good relationship at this time. Um, and then the communists caught up with him again, and he's was in Odessa for a time, and then he returns home to Kharkov, and um, he's in his mid-twenties now, and he marries his wife, Leah Robinson, daughter of Rebinsian Robinson, a prominent chassid. He actually was able to get, um, he he's able to send a message out to the Friedrich Rebbe, the Rebbe the Rayats, the sixth Rebbe of Chabad, who had left the Soviet Union in 1927, now we're holding in 1933, six years later, and he was able to smuggle out a question to the Friedrich Rebbe in, um, in 1933 to Poland um, and ask him about who he should marry. And the Friedrich Rebbe advised him to go ahead with the Shidduch, with this Leah Robinson. And um, so, so he gets married, he's 26 years old, and his... Um, his uh he said uh he so he and he starts working uh he goes into business and he becomes also a fundraiser for the clandestine operation of the underground Timchitmimi Yeshiva network in the Stalinist Soviet Union. So anything he made as a businessman, he gave everything over he had to maintain a religious life because he gave over everything to Timchitmimim. He gave over everything to maintain religious life in the Soviet Union in the underground yeshivas, underground mikvahs, helping families where the breadwinner had been arrested or even deported to Siberia. He lived in a small town in, near Moscow during this time. And then when World War II breaks out and the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union, Operation Barbarossa, June 22, 1941, so he, like many others, fl- uh, fled to the inter- interior of the Soviet Union and he ends up 
on his first round in Samarkand in Uzbekistan. He'd eventually be there again in the 1960s, but now he's there in the 1940s during the Second World War, as did thousands of others uh, refugees. So during his first stint in Samarkand in, the, in Uzbekistan, there was one of the last bastions of underground Hasidic life in the Soviet Union. And when Remendel arrived there, he tried to open a cheder, a school, for, a Torah school for young children. Um, unbelievable. And he, he opened a few um, over this time, and, and, and he, he stayed there till the end of the war. When the, wars, when the war was over, 1945, so in July 6, 1945, the Soviet Union signs this repatriation agreement with Poland. And that any Polish citizens, and there are hundreds of thousands of Polish citizens, many of them Jews, a couple of hundred thousand Jews, um, had Polish Jews had escaped to the Soviet Union and survived the war in the Soviet Union. Under Nazi occupation in Poland, it was almost impossible to survive uh, during the war. Almost all Polish Jews were killed, but um, a couple of hundred thousand of them, which is also not that many, uh, survived by escaping into the Soviet Union. And now they're able to return. They're able to leave, legally leave the Soviet Union and go back to Poland. And many of them did not stay in Poland after a short time in Poland. Many of them continued on to displaced persons camps, DP camps that the American and British militaries had established in Germany, where they eventually went to Israel or the United States or other countries. So this repatriation agreement opened up a great opportunity for Soviet Jews like the Lubavitcher Hasidim, that Remendel Futafas, those that community that he was associated with. So they set up this committee to get forged Polish documents that they're attesting to the fact that they're really Polish citizens, and therefore they fall under the this agreement, this repatriation agreement, that they're allowed to legally leave the Soviet Union. And Lvov was this border town, and it goes on in Lvov. And Remendel was one of the heads of this committee in organizing and getting the forged documents and helping families get to the border and processing them through Lvov and getting them onto trains and organizing train after train to go and able to get hundreds or maybe even thousands of of. of uh, Soviet Jews who wanted to get out of the Soviet Union, be able to live a religious life normally, and finally be able to leave and get out of this horrible place. His wife and children are able to leave. He himself stays till the very end so he can help as many people as possible, and he ends up getting stuck. He wasn't able to leave. He was arrested, um, and uh, this was um, unfortunate for him. So he was one of the leaders of this whole operation, um, and it was, and he, he, uh, he gets sentenced to an eight-year sentence in Siberia at this time because of his role in um, in this operation. Um, so um, the, the the reason the story is important is because first of all, there's a couple of hundred thousand Polish Jews who survived the war by escaping to the Soviet Union. Now we would not look at Stalin as the greatest saver of Jewish lives during the Holocaust, right? That seems almost impossible to comprehend. But at the end of the day, there are hundreds of thousands of Polish Jews, close to 200,000 Polish Jews, who the reason they survived the Holocaust is because they found refuge in the Soviet Union and were able to survive the warriors there. So it's a paradox that somehow Stalin becomes this great savior. I don't think he intended to do so. I don't think he was a great lover of Jews. In fact, I know he wasn't. But it's a irony of history that this happened. And now that he 
goes ahead, that Stalin goes ahead and allows all these Polish citizens, Jews and non-Jews, there's nothing to do with Jews at this point, to return home, this opens up another golden opportunity for Soviet Jews to be able to utilize this and get out. So this is a bit of an overlooked aspect of history, of Jewish history, um, especially of the Second World War, is about Jews in the Soviet Union during the Second World War and how they're able to have this window of opportunity to be able to escape and get out of the Soviet Union, both Pol- real Polish Jews and Soviet Jews who are trying to forge documents and pretend they're Poles. And Mendel Futterfass is at the center of it all. Um, so he tried to get out at the last second, and like I said, he was arrested. He was in prison, he went through interrogations, lasted for several months, and he, um, and he, uh, and he eventually gets sentenced to eight years of hard labor in Siberia. Now, when he gets to Siberia, he attempts to keep Shabbos. He says he's not going to work on Shabbos, and somehow he negotiates an agreement with his, his labor commander, whatever it was, in this Siberian God-forsaken place that he's, uh, that he's, that he's not going to work on Shabbos. And somehow he was able to get himself out of it, at least to a certain extent. It's unclear to what extent. And even kosher food. I mean, not that there was kosher food. There wasn't much food altogether. But he was able to refrain from eating trade. Now, this is eight years. This is not Nazi concentration camps, obviously. This is in the Soviets. It's definitely a different type of environment. Um, there were things that were able to be done uh, that would not have been able to be done during the Second World War under Nazi occupation. But here it was um, it was still a bit of a challenge. And to be able to uh, maintain that, not eat anything, not kosher for that time, for that long time in a in Siberia was a pretty impressive accomplishment as well. Um, he was not able to put on tefillin for most of his time there. He smuggled in a small pair of tefillin initially, but um, eventually it was... It, it, it either lost it or it, or or it, it, either his tefillin froze and and the straps snapped. He wasn't able to put them on. But for most of his time there, he did not have tefillin. That was the bottom line. Um, but what's amazing is is that he the rest of his life, you know, of course, all Lubavitcher Hasidim they love helping other Jews put on tefillin. But Remendel immediately after his leaving his leaving the Soviet Union, he was running around England putting tefillin on. On, uh, on on Jewish on, on Jews, he was putting a tefillin on everyone, and people said, "Why don't you just first relax? You just got out of the Soviet Union after all these years, and you just got to England to reunite with your family. You know, maybe calm down about the tefillin for now, and you'll get to it later." And he said that for so many years he didn't get to put on tefillin himself, and now that he finally is able to, he feels like he has to make up for all those years that he didn't get to put on tefillin, and the way to make up for it is by putting it on others. He's going to put tefillin on others. So that was a, a very special uh, story. But that's, I'm jumping ahead because that's only when he gets out of the Soviet Union. After his eight-year sentence is filled, he had to be there the entire eight years, he's able to leave Siberia, but he's not able to leave the Soviet Union. He's still stuck there. So now it's 1953. It's around the time of Stalin's death, but it's still the Soviet Union. He has no family in the country. His wife and children had been able to get out during that repatriation story. So he settled in Chernovitz, where he lived uh, close to a friend of his, Ramesha Vyshedsky. I'm sorry, he was released in 1955, excuse me, not in 1953. Um, He had been arrested in 1947 after this whole story of repatriation was over. And he lives in, in Chernovitz until 1960. During those five years, he went right back to work to strengthen Jewish life in the Soviet Union. 
Now, I remind you, this is the second great story I wish to emphasize for its historical context of this podcast. This is the post-Stalin Soviet Union of the 1950s and 60s. This is after the Holocaust in the Soviet Union, which wiped out um, a good portion of Jewish life in the Soviet Union completely, exterminated, uh, close, you know, close to 2 million Jews, a million, 1.7, 1.8 million Jews in the Soviet Union were killed in the Holocaust by the Nazis. And then there's, there's also, whatever Jews are left, this is already after four decades of communist rule and stamping out any Jewish life and religion. So Jewish religion and Jewish life at this point in the, the mid-1950s in the Soviet Union was considered dead by all analysts. And this is way before the beginning of the Renaissance of the 1980s and 90s. This is like the darkest period of the Soviet, of Jewish life in the Soviet Union from the 50s until the 80s. And Remendel Fotrfas is there until 1963, 1964, something like that. And he's building Yiddishkeit and inspiring others. Um, now, he, he, um, who, he, he, these people that he was relating to did not know what Yiddishkeit was. They didn't know what Hasidic life was. They didn't know what a Rebbe was or anything like that. And he's leading underground Fabrengans. Now, that's an amazing story. And it, the reason it's historically significant is because in the, two, in the three, nearly 300 years of the Hasidic movement, we come to understand that Hasidic life operates within the framework of a court, within the framework of a Rebbe, with a certain ceremonial context to it. And here, Mendel, for the first time, as far as I know, in Hasidic history, is creating really a new type of movement, a Hasidus that operates without a Rebbe, without institutions, without most of the ceremony. It's Soviet Jews meeting in secret and learning Hasidus and teaching Hasidus and singing a niggin and warming each other's hearts. And he's trying to do that and, and, and with, with the few people that he had around him, which is an incredible accomplishment. So it's almost like a, a, a new type of Hasidic movement. It's a new type of Hasidus that never existed before that he really is able to formulate and build from, from bottom up. Um, and that I find to be a very compelling story as well. He also even tries to open a Jewish school, an underground school. He, he wanted to build a mikveh in Chernovitz. Um, he, ne- he didn't even try to rest for a week after his lengthy prison sentence and eight years in, in Siberia. He went right away to building Jewish life. Um, he then, and then in 1960, he moved back to Samarkand, again, into Uzbekistan, in the middle of Asia. One of the last underground yeshivas in the Soviet Union was still active there. And Remendel arrives there after the previous Mashpia, Rav Berkechein, had left Samarkand. And he takes his place as this official Mashpia of the Hasidim in the city. Now again, you never thought that there was that type of a position in 1960 in the Soviet Union. But there was, apparently. And um, with great dedication and sacrifice, Rav, Rav Mendel uh, Futafas goes there and, and, uh, and takes that position. Um, in 1960, and he remained there until he finally exited the Soviet Union a few years later to rejoin his family in England. Um, he was able to get out there because the British Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, was able to negotiate um, a reuniting family operation, and several Soviet citizens, their families, were in England, 
and Ramendel was one of them, and uh, and he was able to apply for his exit, and a lot of pressure that the that 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 you know everyone knew about him. He was this famous chassid and leader, and uh, everyone wanted to get him out. Um, and uh, and he was able to reunite with his family. It's amazing that in 1962. The Lubavitcher Rebbe said at a Fabrengen in Crown Heights, he said, there is a Jew sitting in Russia, and for a number of years his family has been in the free world, but he is left there alone. He has a full beard, and if he wishes, he could sit a whole day by himself and learn Tyra. This would also be in accordance with the Shulchan Aruch. Being active in spreading Yiddishkeit is fraught with danger, and therefore he can also decide to pray to Hashem that the good people win. But he didn't choose any of these choices. He decided to be active in promoting Yiddishkeit. How is he active? He's building mikvahs. His wife is not with him. He will have no personal benefit from a woman's mikvah. Doing this work is at the risk of his life. It means collecting funds, something that brings publicity. Then he needs to publicize that there is a mikvah for people to use. This is something that the Rebbe says at, uh, he obviously doesn't say his name, he doesn't want to put Remendel's life in danger, but um, the, the Lubavitch Rebbe is like amazed at the sacrifice and the heroism of the activism of Remendel Futterfass under the Soviet Union in the 1960s. Um, and when he finally obtains an, ev- an exit visa, Harold Wilson got it, he was, he was going to meet uh, Khrushchev, and, uh, and, the, and, uh, and there was this whole... You know, the Hasidic community, the Lubavitch community, they put, you know, asked, submitted this request to get um, Rav Mendel out, um, and uh, he was able to to get to to London, and then he, he he started to visit the United States. He went to Crown Heights. He went to visit the Rebbe, and um, the Lubavitch Rebbe actually asked him to start helping get to to get bris uh, brisson for Russian Jews. And that was something that he decided to to do for the rest of his life. So that's another thing that he's going to do. He's going to go to you know try to encourage Russian Jews who were able to get out of the Soviet Union to encourage them to have a bris mila. Um, Mendel then goes into business. He goes into textiles. He becomes a businessman, and at the same time, he starts uh, going going. You know, like I said, he starts putting on tefillin on people in London. He and he becomes a bit of a mashpia there. And then in the 1970s, um, he moves to Kfar Chabad. The Lubavitch Rebbe asked him to become the main mashpia in Kfar Chabad because the previous year, Rabbi Shleim Chaim Kesselman, who was one of the biggest leaders of Lubavitch in Israel, he passed away in 1971. So a couple of years later, in 1973, Rabbi Mendel Futterfass was appointed as his successor, as the one who headed the Hasidic operations in Kfar Chabad, which is the Chabad headquarters in Israel near uh, Tel Aviv, near Lud, and um, and he remained there for the rest of his life. Unfortunately, his life was fraught with tragedy in his personal life. He sustained yet another personal tragedy at this point. He had lost four of his children in their youth, um, and uh, and two during the, the war in Samarkand, and two even before that when they were little babies, little children. And in England, he had a daughter and son. Both of them had large families. Um, and his daughter and son-in-law uh, were, were, were in a car accident, and his daughter died. Um, so his, his, one of his last remaining children, and now her, her children are all orphans. He had to raise his grandchildren now. Um, 
and uh, and that was a, another tragedy that he sustained. But that didn't stop him. He still was inspiring others. He still he would go spend a few months a year in the United States. So it wasn't only in Israel that he had an impact. It was both several months a year he was in Crown Heights, and then the rest of the year in Israel. And he'd also stop over in England to visit his children and grandchildren there. Um, so he was all over the place, and everyone was able to be uh, inspired by him. In fact, on his on his on his way back, it was actually um, he was visiting England when he passed away um, in 1990, uh, uh, 1995, I believe, nineteen ninety five, and he um, was on his way to Crown Heights. He was in Israel on his way to Crown Heights, and he stopped in England to visit his family. And he passed away. So he's actually buried in London. Um, that's where he is. So he had a fascinating life. And this was Remendel Futterfass. There's, of course, a lot more to say about what he said over, the stories that he said, the teachings that he said, the parables that he would use to inspire others. And he was very charismatic, great speaker. He was, he, people were drawn to him. He, 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 he had this uh, power of his imagination. In other words, he would be able to describe things, very descriptive sense. He brought his, he engaged his audience and brought them in and was very, very powerful with his, with the way he was able to uh, relate to the crowds. There's a lot to say about that as well, but we'll leave it at this uh, just to give a little bit of the context of his life. So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at For questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, uh, sponsorships, lectures, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoy.